My name is Robert Schreiner, and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds, and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello, 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 and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a singer, songwriter, and a recording artist. We get to talk with Drew Ryder-Smith. We'll talk to him about his time working with John Snyder, what it was like opening for Merle Haggard, and we'll take a deep dive into his latest single, X's. Now, Drew is not only an award-winning singer-songwriter, but he's an amazing recording artist, and I can't wait to talk with him tonight. So if you would like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Drew, sir, how are you? I'm great, brother. How you doing? I am fantastic, sir. I am very excited for tonight. I've been looking forward to this for a long time now. Yeah, same here, man. Thank you for having me. Well, it is my pleasure. Why don't we just go ahead and jump in? I have a whole ton of things I want to talk to you about tonight. Can you tell me how your early days, especially your early days in radio, have played into your career now? Man, uh, radio is great. I miss radio. If it paid the bills, I'd, I'd consider um, I'd consider doing that when I retired. Seeing that side of it and how labels you know, send new artists, how they promote those new artists, even down to how they they will pull a, a new track at the last minute, you know, to go for a, 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 another artist. But so it's a really crazy thing seeing it on that end of it. You don't necessarily hear a whole lot of that, you know, labels saying, well, here's a, here's a new Dirk Spentley song. And then you know, right before it's supposed to to go for ads at radio, they'll they'll pull out and say, "Hang on, hang on, we've got, you know, we've got this other artist here. We're gonna we're gonna wait till next month on Dirks." And it was that was something that I never knew happened. And they they all have reasons for that, and it's it's all you know. There's several different reasons for why those things happen, but to, yeah, to see that side of it, man, was wild. And uh, to have artists come in and. And uh, and do live performances and do their radio tours and you know they'd hit three or four radio stations maybe in one day and they'd fly in real quick and say here's some donuts thanks for having us you know and they'd play a couple songs and they'd go all right we gotta go and they'd be you know they drive an hour and a half to radio station in a different market and so it was uh, it gave me a good idea of what that radio tour stuff is like as as an artist because it's tough man it's a grind people have no idea. So, yeah, man, and it just, I was surrounded by music all day, and I can't really think of a better job than that. No. We had Billy Yates on a few weeks ago, and he complained about where he would go into a radio station for promotional purposes, and at the very last minute, he would be pulled. Yeah. So he said that was an ongoing battle that he had to go through, so it's kind of, 
kind of good to hear from the radio's point of view as well and how often that does actually happen. Yeah. So what was your most memorable moment from the radio time? I mean, I worked for Sam Phillips of Sun Records. And when I started in radio, I was like 14 when I when I got a job in radio in my hometown. Insane. Yeah. And, but I, yeah, I pretty much talked like this back then. And so they started me off reading, you know, the weather and then the local news. And then I eventually got a, a shift as a DJ. And then by the time I was 16, I started working in Muscle Shoals. And then within, I think, a year or maybe less, I, I started working at a radio station or a cluster of stations that Sam Phillips owned. And that was such a wild experience for me because I mean, he was the 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 father of rock and roll, you know, the godfather of rock and roll, really. And so to work for a guy like that, when I was so heavily influenced by so many different types of music, and knowing that this guy, you know, he had Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee and you know, so many of those dudes. And, and Sam was still alive at the time. And so getting to work for him, man, the whole thing was an experience. It was a memorable experience. That's uh, awesome. It was crazy. Yeah, I was really blessed to be able to do that. There's not, not a lot of people that can say that they work for Sam Phillips. Man, he was still a wildcat, too, you know, all the way up to the end. And he, he was all about, you know, long live rock and roll. Elvis and them were obviously before my time, but I did have a chance to record the, the A-team in RCA Studio B in Nashville. Really? Absolutely amazing time. I had no idea that, uh, that you did anything at RCA, though. No, that was only that one time. It was um, for the Audio Engineering Society. We put <laughs> That's on That's all you need, man. Hey, one time is all it takes. RCA right? with the A-team? Come on. Yeah. So, I mean, it was it was an absolute pleasure. We went in there to do a presentation, and it was just a... A showcase type thing, but it was it was great. Yeah, so, thank God that place is still there, man. Oh, such they history! Buried. They've had to fight for it for years, but uh, it's still standing, still going. Yeah, I was in town a week or two ago, and I took my daughter to a concert in Nashville. We went to see the Arctic Monkeys, and we drove up and down Music Row, and man, how things have changed! Isn't it crazy? But I was able to point out RCA Studio B tour, so that was cool. Yeah, that's about all that's left to point out. Right. Yeah, man. Well, Music Row's made its way over to Berry Hill these days. I mean, we've got the new Music Row. It has, yeah. Everybody's everybody's moved down there, and they're hiding out down there, man. Just trying to keep their feet in it. Yeah, everybody's trying real hard, man. Rent's a little lower in Berry Hill. Oh, yeah. But uh, but I get it, man. I mean, the, you know, the boom happened, and you've got these guys that come in with pocket full of money and you know offer up all of it for a little publishing house and you know if, if you own that building i mean how can you say no is they're offering way more than what it's worth right. just to knock it down put a big hole in the ground and and uh build some condos yeah well that's what we were talking about with the tracking room we were talking about that last week how the yeah. tracking room it was one of the biggest studios in the world and just an amazing place and everybody and their mother had recorded there and then we just tear it down because somebody wants to put up a high rise. Yeah. Yeah. Money talks. Progress, I think is what they call it, Jay. I'm not I'm not is, sure. Is that what that is? That I understand the Well, that's that's <laughs> what they say. I, I had a I, I understood the definition to be a little different than yeah. that, but it's all right. 
Maybe that's what it is. So how did you make that transition from there to Nashville? Well, I, um, I, I knew that radio was not something that I was going to do the rest of my life. I knew that I loved it, but that ultimately I wanted to, I wanted to write songs, I wanted to perform. So I, I ended up, I left radio to get a job that I could get myself into a little bit of school and give me something to have a, a bit of a, um, a backup plan. Because at that point I had, I was a high school dropout, man. I had, uh, at that time I didn't even have my GED. And so I went and I got my GED and took the ACTs, did all that stuff and got into college and uh, just a community college, you know, became an EMT, did that for four years. Oh, wow. But, you know, once I, once I got my EMT license, I started working in Nashville because I thought, well, man, that's, that'd be the way to do it, get up there and, and be around it. And so I was driving back and forth. Uh, from my hometown to Nashville, about an hour and a half drive, doing that. And sure enough, man, that led to all these contacts, you know, even people that I worked with. And it just, and then I started playing downtown and it just kind of slowly evolved. And I worked really hard on networking at the time. What year was this? Oh, God, 2008. Okay. Yeah. 2008. And, um, Picked up just a, a independent agent out of Texas. She didn't own a map, so we, we man, we toured all over God's creation, and none of it made any sense. But it was it was a really good way to to break me in and uh, really show me how tough it was out there. That it's it's more than buses and hotel rooms and nice hotel rooms, right. things like that. You know. We'd go play 10,000-seater shows and stay in the worst motel in town. Barely make enough money to, to make it to, to the cover expenses, show. much less get paid. Yeah. And, and I, I really, you know, I thought it was going to be much different than that. Well, did you have fun during that time? Uh, yes and no. I starved to death, but I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, what did you learn from those times? There was a week out there, Jay, where, honest to God, man, I lived on one pack of ramen a day. And that was it. And, and the rest, whatever, whatever we could drink at the bar for free that night. Wow. You know, wherever we were playing. And it, was, it was wild. There were several weeks like that. But, man, I, I really I learned that if, if you want to do it, you just you got to do it. And, and it's not always going to be fun at games. And there's times that it's going to suck. I mean, it's, uh, I ended up losing my house. Um, well, I was, I was young, man, and had owned a home for, I guess, four years, I think, something like that, and lost my house to foreclosure, and they repossessed my car, and, but I just kept trucking, man, and, and eventually came out the other side of that and ended up with a publishing deal, and, you know, it kind of went from there, but, yeah, my biggest takeaway was that it's, um, it's much easier to get out than it is in the sure. music business. Of course. You, you really pay for it on the front end. I wouldn't trade any of it, man. Those were, those were good times and those were good lessons to learn and they made me tough. Well, how do you keep the motivation to move forward during those times? Uh, man, I think it's, it's the people, really. 
you know, because everything sucks for for about you know sixteen hours out of a day when you're running down the highway with you know four or five other guys and um, staying in you know bad motels and things like that, sketchy parts of town, and barely making enough money to eat. Then you go play, and man, the people are there, and if you're doing your job, they're loving it. It's that you know one, two, three hours, however much time you get, whatever kind of circuit that, that you're touring on, it's that amount of time that makes it all worth it. Then that's what kept me motivated. Yeah. yeah. Kind of gives you that fresh start every day to to keep moving forward. Yeah, for sure. What what venues were you playing? So we would, you know, we'd get 10,000 seater like uh, uh, festivals and things like that. But, you know, but a lot of those places would be you know, maybe 800 capacity. Some of them would be 300 capacity. Some of them would be, you know, casinos just to get us through to other gigs. Sure. There was a lot of that. You know, so we really, I mean, we we played everything, man. County fairs and... Was any type <laughs> that you like above another? Well, you know, I it's hard for me to say, man, because I came in to the casino deal when and I haven't played a casino in years, but but I played casinos 2008 and later. And from what I understand, those gigs were really great gigs to have prior to 2008. Yep. And uh, after that big collapse, they 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 stopped putting a ton of money into uh, into comps. You know, so it trickled all the way down to, you know, right to, to people staying at the, at the casinos. But they took the money out of that. They took, and they certainly cut the budget for entertainment. And so the budget went down and what they would give you, you know, I've, I've talked to guys that at, at that time I had talked to guys that had been on the casino runs, you know, even just a couple of years prior to that. And they said, man, they pay for every meal you got, you got the, like these, you know, great suites to yeah. stay in and you know the the works they treat you like royalty but all that kind of went away i would have liked to have seen that i think those would have probably been some of my my favorite gigs but really i guess festivals man and then it's, it's because you have a bit of a built-in crowd because you're opening for bigger artists yeah and so those people show up and it looks like you probably entered Nashville right as I was leaving. And, you know, I had done some of the casino gig stuff as well. And you did. You got treated like a rock star back then. And I don't know what it's like now. It's been a long time. But we would get these suites that were, you know, three-bedroom suites that looked like they were bigger than my house. I mean, they were just amazing. And yeah, it was a, a great time. All meals, everything, you know, was comped. That's what everybody says, man. I really hate that I missed that period. <laughs> well, I'm all about some casino food, man. Yeah. I really am. I, uh, you know what? I just love the buffets. I, I absolutely loved going yeah, to, in Vegas. We went to all the buffets. We were up in um in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. We we played there, and it was cool. It was a good time. They still have some great shows there, man. Yeah, no, I mean they, they uh -huh. do. I mean I. I was just at the casino here in town. We just went to see uh, Steve Miller Band. We went to see Stained. Yeah. So, I mean, get to see a couple good shows here at the casino. I mean, good times. So, during all this, you're also writing songs. So, how do you balance yeah. writing songs versus performing? 
Man, I've, I've figured out that if I'm doing too much of one thing, I'm really, really missing the other. So if I'm traveling a lot and not getting to write, I, I notice that I really start, I just, I want to, I want to get somewhere and be still and write and vice versa. You know, if I'm writing a lot and I haven't, I haven't performed or traveled, I start itching for that. Sure. Know, so. no, that would make sense. And it's hard. And you've been out there, man. You've done it. It's not, um, people say, oh, man, don't you, don't you ride on the road? And it's like, well, when? <laughs> <laughs> In between what meet and greet and radio that? tour or yeah. you know, sleeping like in the, in the bathroom bus. or right. what? That's too funny. So all the songs that you've written, I know you've had some great success, but do you have any favorite songs? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've even got some recent favorites. Um, I just had an EP come out you know, earlier this summer. I'm really proud of. And there's some songs on there that, that are some favorites of mine. I love the truth and... I love X's uh, "Damn Babe" is another one. X's is taken off on Spotify oh. for sure. Yeah, man, it's done well. Yeah, it's done really well. I wrote that with my buddy uh, Rob Snyder. He's man, he's, he's such a great guy, but he's a great writer. He's had you know, several Luke Combs hits, and then you would never know it by talking to him. But he and I were writing before any of that bigger stuff started happening to him, and. Man, he's he's hung with it and he's doing great now. Man, really, really great dude. So I loved writing that one with him. And that's one I wanted to take a deeper dive into because just listening to it, I feel like I I can recognize pieces of it and anything from like the style of the background vocal to the background vocalist. So can you tell me a little bit about how it came out? From let's start with the writing process. How do you even come up with the idea? <laughs> man, my uh, my partner jokingly threatened to break up with me and uh i said well you know you don't want to do that because if you do that then we're gonna spend like the next three months with you calling me every few days in the middle of the night and i'm a sucker so i'm gonna pick up the phone and then we'll we'll talk about it and then we're both gonna be upset and you know we'll repeat the process a few days later and it's going to be a whole thing. And so from that, I came up with, you only call me when you've been drinking in the middle of the night. I'm going to pick up, and, you know, all that. So I, I kind of fleshed out the first verse and chorus. And I, I, Rob and I had a date on the books to write. And I guess it was a few days prior I sent it to him and sent him the, the bones of the first verse and chorus that I had. And, I said, hey, man, you, you want to write this? And and uh, he texted me back and said, yeah, dude, let's, I'd love to finish that with you. So we, we got together a few days later and finished it up. And when we did the work tape, we wrote over at Rob's office and we did the work tape and I sang the lead vocal and, and Rob was singing the harmony. And it was just, you know, just a little scratch recording on, on my phone. And so I was getting ready to record it, and I'd I'd played it, I played it for a few people, one of which was my partner, and uh, I went to do uh, backgrounds on it, and she said, "You got to call Rob for the backgrounds," because he he just sounded so great, you know, just on the little scratch tape you did, and it just you guys blend really well together. So I I called him, and said, "Hey man, you want to sing backups on this thing?" And he was gracious enough to agree, and he came and. 
knocked out backgrounds. So that's the backgrounds that's on that final recording then. Yeah. Oh, very cool because it, it does have yeah, a, Rob a, Snyder. a special piece to it. I mean, it really does add a lot. And it's hard to put your finger on it. You don't know exactly what it is, but it does work. So, well, it's, it's funny, man, because I had, I had originally uh, sang backgrounds on my recording of it. And I made it a point to copy, I mean, exactly the way he had done it in the room the day that we wrote it. And I did that. I felt like I'd done a pretty good job of it. Uh, I mean, I had him, I had it tied up note for note, exactly what Rob did. But, you know, she, she noticed that difference and said, no, you got to get Rob to do it. And you're right, man. I mean, it's the, it's the exact same notes, but there's something about when he sings it that makes it special. That's one thing I love about music. It's the chemistry between the two. Yeah. Yeah. It's just got a, a different rub to it. Yeah. I mean, there's there's times where the same vocal blending like that works out really well, and then there's times where adding a second person just really makes a difference. Yeah, for sure. So you guys went through that writing process, and you wrote it on your own, finished it in his office. Then it comes time to, to record it. Did you, other than the work tape, guitar, vocal, did you guys do any sort of demo, or did you just go in and record it? No, just went in and recorded uh I, I sent it to this this buddy of mine, Russell Jackson, who's uh, he's been co-producing everything with me. And Russell's a really, really talented guy, great guitar player, and um, his production skills are are really getting uh, really incredible. And I sent it to him, and I said, "Man, I think I think this needs keys and slide guitar." And I could be completely wrong because I, I always feel Jay that like slide guitar kind of has a time and a place, but it's not, it's not everywhere. You got to be as careful. As much as I love slide guitar. Right. Yeah. You start caking it on everything, man. And it just, it, it, it loses that, that special thing that it has. And, uh, I said, I, you know, I could be wrong, man, but I think, I think this needs slide guitar. And what I really was going for was the outro of Layla. Oh Yeah. Derek and the Dominoes, that outro part. And that was, you know, that was Clapton and uh, Dwayne Allman. And they were going back and forth on guitar. Dwayne was playing slide. And then uh, Bobby Whitlock did all the keys on that song. And Bobby's a phenomenal player himself. But he, he was with Dominoes for, you know, I guess the entirety of their existence. But there was something about the way that he played and then the way that uh, that Dwayne, you know, played on, on top of that, on top of the piano. And I, I just thought this, there was something really special about that. So that was what we went for and that was uh, that was what we aimed for. And I think Russell absolutely nailed it. He's a, again, he's a great guitar player. and um, I think he, he absolutely nailed the essence of, of what he and I were both hearing. No, I mean, it, it was great. It was fantastic. And I don't know if you've had the chance to see the documentary about Tom Dowd. Tom Dowd was the engineer who recorded Layla. Yeah, that's and right. And he breaks that down, and he actually isolates those guitar tracks and how they build up, and they match it with Dwayne Allman. But either way, it was pretty cool. It was a cool documentary, and to hear those isolated tracks was really cool. One thing I love about when Tom isolates those tracks, when he's got Eric's guitar 
soloed. And he's got Dwayne's guitar soloed. And you hear them together, just, just the two guitars. It makes zero sense. And you just go, this is chaos, man. And, and not only that, but it's, it's bad chaos. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And as soon as he puts them back in the track, everything is just, you, 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 when you hear it in context, you go, oh, my God. You know, it's incredible, man. Well, that's a great point. I mean, that happens with, with mixing all around. I know you, you're a mix engineer as well. Yeah. When people get so focused on isolating each instrument to work on each instrument one at a time at a time at a time, yes, there's a time and place for that when you need to correct something. Sure. But when you do that, you're ruining that blend, yeah. and you don't realize you're doing it. But then, you know, I used to teach at the the local engineering school, and when students would say, you know, I've got this guitar sounding just right and this kick drum's just right. I'm like, great, now put them all together. It doesn't <laughs> blend anymore. You, you you took out the magic of it all. Yeah, absolutely, so, man. I worked for a producer in town named Bob Bullock, one of the best. Yep. And he used to always say that, you know, everything, he just joins the party. You know, this other instrument just joins the party and everything. You don't isolate it. You don't take it out. You don't gate it. You just let it be there because it adds to the party. Man, I love that. Uh, I love, I love, it adds to the party. That's a great way to look at it. I, man, I have to, I have to see things that way um, when it comes to mixing. You know, I, I had a, a friend of mine that told me once, uh, we, we were talking about um, this hi-hat, and there was just, hi-hat all over these drum tracks man the bleed was insane and uh i said man what my god like and it was one of those things too jay when you pull the uh when when you pulled the hi-hat the direct mic the hi-hat out that didn't feel right when you put it back in that didn't feel right either and and i couldn't figure it out no I said, man, what are we, what are we going to do with this hi hat? Like, I don't. It's just, it's everywhere, and it's, it's driving me crazy. So you just make it a grizzly bear. Like, make it a thing, man. Make it a grizzly bear, make and that that really changed things for me. Yeah, I got to meet Bob a few years ago, and I was mixing a live show. And and I say a few years ago, it's been more than that now, but I was mixing a live show that I had no business mixing. <laughs> And I had a console go down. It was that, um, well, it was the the X32. It should have been no surprise that it went down, but it went down. And I had to, I went and and stole, well, I, I borrowed another console from, from another venue that they had in storage that they weren't using. And I knew that it worked, that it, it at least worked. Right. And I ran it back to this venue. Anyway, Bob was there. It was a cool thing. Bob's one of the best. Absolutely one of the best. So what's going through your mind when a console goes down? Oh, I absolutely panicked. Uh, I was mixing for John Schneider. Oh, yeah. And That's why you met yeah. Bob. Yeah. And so um, I was mixing him, and it was one of my very first gigs with him. And, I, man, I'm, I'm not a live mixer at all. And I've never claimed to be, and I've never really wanted to be. But, you know, one of my best friends uh, from years ago was, was playing guitar for John. 
And ironically, John had recorded one of my songs. And anyway, I I went to a a John Schneider show, just really just to see my buddy. And I hadn't seen him in in years, in a few years, I guess. And he said, man, he said, you got to come out on the road. You need to come mix us. And said, "Um, we're really in in dire need of a, a new live guy. You should come with us. And I said, okay. And I only said, okay, because it was him. Right. And so I went on the road with, with Schneider. It was one of my first shows with him. And we were, we were doing a venue on Broadway. I don't remember which one it was, but he was doing, he was doing a big showcase there for something. There were several bands there, but man, it was a nightmare. Yeah. I absolutely panicked. And the, the board had, it, it, it didn't, it, it gave me a, f- a few clues prior to it happening because I'd been there most of the day and I'd push the faders up and everything was good. And then a couple hours later, I had a fader that was doing a weird thing. And then, you know, an hour after that, something else went weird. And you know, 20 minutes after that, something else. And then by the time we were like 30 minutes from downbeat and it just went kaput, oh, you know, no output 30 at all. minutes to do that. Yeah, oh, and uh, it was a wild, wild deal. I ran down Broadway through the rain, and and I went and stole um, a new where Irv Woolsey had uh, an old console that he had recently replaced. And so I ran up there and I grabbed that. And didn't I didn't ask. <laughs> I didn't have time to ask anybody permission for anything, right. man. I just grabbed it, ran it back through the rain and you know, to the other venue and ran it upstairs and we got it hooked up. It was a nightmare. I mean, between the pressure and the, the panic going through your head, I mean, how do you get it hooked up so quick and get it ready within a half hour? We got really lucky there. I mean, I already had all the lines ran. So and the snake was going to the console. So I just... Uh, I set it, I think I set it on top of the X32 and I pulled the lines from there and and popped it in. Yeah. And then prayed real hard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. John Snyder's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Bob was on here a few weeks ago and he was talking about the, the thing that John Snyder did. I think it was last year or the year before where he promised his fans a song a week to be released for a year. So Bob and John went in and recorded 52 singles, which is absolutely insane. So you are also an engineer. If we go back to X's, did you track your own session? Yeah, Russell and I did all of that ourselves. We we cut mostly everything at his place. I think I did some overdubs, guitars and vocals at my place. I had a place on Music Row until just a couple months ago. And uh, they, <laughs> they sold it. And so, uh, so I had to move my studio out. But, but yeah, so we'd, we'd kept the majority of it at Russell's and I did some overdubs at my place and then we mixed it at my place. But yeah, we, we did everything ourselves. So did you mix it or did the two of you mix it? Uh, Russell sat behind me and, um, and told me when I needed to take a break. So... I, I consider that both of us. <laughs> sure. 
No, I, I've worked with some producers where we sit right at the, the desk together. And even though I'm the one mm. pushing the buttons, it's a lot of it is their ideas or things that they're coming up with. Yeah. So what kind of collaboration process did you have with them? Um, man, just, you know, he and I just trusting each other. W one thing that I think we do well together is that when we first started recording songs for me, we both knew that we didn't want it to be, we didn't want it to be slick. We didn't want anything to be super shiny. We wanted to run them through some tape emulations and we, we weren't concerned about it sounding like what's on the radio. We weren't concerned about it sounding like a Jason Aldean record. Not that I mean, his records sound great. We just knew that that's not what we were going for. And so Russell and I had a tendency, we both have a tendency together to, to get a little weird. And I think that we're, we're both pretty good at, at keeping each other out of trouble. You know, I'd say, well, man, you know, let's let's try this. Let's run this through whatever, and we'd try it. And he'd go, man, that's you know, I get what I get what you're aiming for. That might be too weird, and vice versa. You know, there's been times when I said, I don't, I don't know, Russ, that might <laughs> that might be too far left of center. And so mainly, I, I, I think I think the 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 best way to to sum up our collaborative efforts is that we we keep each other out of trouble can you give me an example of a time something went left you know it, it does it a lot with me saying hey hey russell let's run this acoustic guitar through an amp you know i think we did right. that once and and he was like ah, i don't know man <laughs> and it was because it was it was pretty out there you know but then there's been other times when you know, we've we've thought that we, our our vision was really far left, and then when we actually heard it, well, that's actually that's that's not that far left at all. And it sounded weirder in our heads, you know. But we trust each other, and I know that when Russell says, "Hey, man, I I, I don't think that's working," then it's not working. And uh, I feel like he has you know, that same usual respect and trust with me. Well, that trust is necessary, especially from your point of view as the artist in this case. You need to have that trust because ultimately you're the one on stage performing this music and it's your name that's going on everything. But yeah. as far as a production point of view, it's also good to have somebody that you can trust working like that because, again, that's a team. Yeah, You're in the production or in the producer's seat at this point, so who's hiring the musicians and who's selecting the musicians? For for my project, it's me and him doing everything. Really, I mean so everything. Yeah, that includes drums and stuff, drums and everything. Yeah, you know that's been <laughs> that's been a blessing and a curse for us. But I, I I'm real blessed that I get to work around a lot of A list guys frequently. I mean, I I just uh, just worked with David Johnson just a few days ago over in Charlotte, North Carolina, and. Kevin Grant, everybody calls him Swine, uh, from Nashville, played on a ton of hits. Uh, Tony Creaseman, who's played drums on a ton of stuff. I just worked with these guys like on today's Monday, so Friday. Incredible players and A-list guys. And Russell and I wanted to, we wanted to 
do this on our own and see how far we got. And I think, I think we got further than what we initially thought we would. And so we've just kept going. Cause I, you know, for me, I think my backup plan was always, well, if, if we absolutely destroy these songs, then, then I'll just go into the studio with a list guys. I'll bring Russell in and we'll, you know, we'll still make this uh, a collaboration. You know, that was kind of the deal. And that was my backup plan, but it's, it's worked out so far, I think, uh, with he oh, and yeah. I playing everything and arranging everything, we've done all right. Oh, sounds great. Like I said, the, the blend of instrumentation and everything sounds really good. It has a, a unique feel to it. It doesn't sound like what's on the radio right now. And it actually has more of um, what I would say comes from your influences. Can you talk about your influences for a minute? Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, I I grew up on a little bit of everything uh, from John Prine to Nirvana uh, to Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Merle Haggard, Don Williams, Dolly Parton, back to, you know, Soundgarden, and then the Eagles, and then, you know, Joe Walsh solo stuff. And uh, Steve Earle was a huge influence for me as well. So just a lot of different stuff, man. And I've always felt like those things, whether you like it or not, uh, things that you grow up on, they pieces of them, you know, it's, it's, it gets in your, in your bones, man. And it's, it's there and it's, you know, likely going to come out one way or another. (laughs) Well, I I do. I think you absorb it and it just comes into you. I mean, you had an opportunity to work with Merle Haggard. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was a miserable experience. A, no, he was he was a wonderful man. It was it was terrifying. I, I will say that it's a, you know to be in the same room with a guy like Merle. It's such such an incredible artist and such an incredible songwriter. The first thing I, I ever did with him was I um, he let me open for him at the Ryman Auditorium, and you know that. That absolutely blew my mind. Was that your first time playing there? Yeah. Yeah. So your first time at the Ryman and playing with Merle. That's awesome. Yeah. Didn't get a sound check that night. I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. Yeah, it was it was crazy, man. I got zero sound check. He had sound checked earlier in the day, so he was good. And then something was going on. There was a problem with something, and so I didn't get a sound check. And I thought, man, if I can just, if I can just get myself on stage, I think everything else will be okay. <laughs> if I can shake off the nerves well enough. Several years prior to that, I was when I was playing down on Broadway. I had this um, this bass player that I'd called for for a gig and. I said, hey, Cliff, can you can you play with me Friday night at whatever bar it was? And he said, Oh yeah, yeah, man, I'd love to. He said, Hey, just to let you know, I said, um, I'm doing the Opry right before that uh, at the Ryman. So if I'm a few minutes late, I will be there. Don't don't panic. But I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run all my stuff down to Broadway from from the Ryman. And I said, Okay, and. And sure enough, he showed up. But anyway, after after the Broadway gig, I said, man, and I had not been playing Broadway long at all, but I said, man, 
what is it like? And of course, in, you know, for me too, at, at the time, I was like, why would this guy leave the Opry and come play on Broadway for me? Like, what's wrong with this dude? <laughs> what's, his, what's going on with him? Does he need drug money? Like, what's he in legal trouble? What's happening? <laughs> well, that's what Nashville's all about. That's right, man. But uh, a- after the gig, I said, Cliff, man, what's it like? What's it like to play on that stage? And he said, you know, Drew, he said, to be honest with you, man, the first few times that I played there, I didn't even enjoy it. And he said, what, what happened was in the first few times that I went on, I was just so in shock by being there and the weight of that and how I'd always dreamed of playing at the Rhyme and in the Opry. And he said, so after about the third time playing, I finally started to settle down a bit. And now I really love it. And it's a really great experience. And for whatever reason, man, that conversation stuck with me. And luckily, I remembered that conversation that night at the Ryman. And I went, okay, dude, if you get too worked up about this, you're not going to remember any of it. You're not going to enjoy it. So just you know, try to be cool. And this is, this is any other gig. You're not going to be doing anything any differently than what you, than what you always do. So go do that and everything will be fine. And so once I calmed myself down, it was, it was really great, man. But, uh, yeah, I had to, I had to have a pretty serious conversation with myself, but Cliff <laughs> saved me, man. Cause I think that's exactly what would have happened. I think I would have been sure. so wrapped up in that moment that I would have went out there and, I would have gotten through it and I'm sure everything would have been great, but I, I wouldn't have gotten the enjoyment of it and I wouldn't have really experienced it the way that I should have experienced it. So I, I was very, very blessed to have had that conversation with a guy that had done it many, many times. Now, I've heard so many musicians describe their first time playing there and it's the same thing. Everybody gets worked up. Did you actually happen to record that night at all? No, I, I didn't. There's some videos floating around on, on YouTube of it. So, uh, a, a guy told me the other day that he had run across it. So at least you're able to go back and kind of yeah. visualize the parts that you can't quite remember. Yeah. And that's yeah. pretty cool. So when it was all over and things you know settled down, what goes through your mind at that point? Um, you know, I so Haggard started doing two shows every time that he played the Ryman he would do two shows in a row so he'd do a Friday night and a Saturday night or whatever whatever nights it was but he would do two consecutive nights and he did that because the first night all the tickets were were taken by industry people and so he added a second night to his Ryman stops so that fans could get tickets and I was playing with him the first night so it was all industry people. So when I finished, I got a standing ovation, which was incredible. But when I finished, I saw all the faces in the crowd. And it was, you know, Tim and Faith and Keith and Nicole. And and then, you know, every everybody from A&R guys to presidents of labels. And Charlie Daniels was there. That has to be some pressure on you. It was pretty wild. I'm glad I didn't see him before I went on. And I looked up and John Prine was standing up clapping. 
And I went, oh my God, I'm I'm so happy I had no idea he was here because uh, that would have really terrified me. Being one of your, your major influences, that has to be a moment you hold on to forever from that point. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that had happened on that show was maybe three to five minutes before the lights went down, somebody ran over to me and said, hey man, Haggard wants to know if if you'll do, because I think my spot was maybe 25 minutes or something like that. I say, Haggard wants to know if you'll do 45. You want to do 45? And uh, I said, yeah, man, if Haggard wants me to do it, <laughs> I'm absolutely going to do it. And so there were there were a lot of things that that happened. No sound check. Haggard, Haggard's giving you another 20 minutes or whatever it was. And and all these things. And I knew that it was industry night, but I didn't, I, at that point, I hadn't seen who was there. But what I did know was that my mother was on one side of the wings and that Merle Haggard was on the other. And that was enough pressure for me. That's all you needed. That, that it didn't really matter who was in the crowd. But but when I finished and the lights went up, yeah, and I, I saw everybody, it was it was a great feeling. But I, again, I was I was happy that I didn't, I couldn't tell who all was in the audience until after the fact. Well, this is where Nashville and experience comes in because we always talk about Nashville and what a music hub it is and how it's so unique. Like you mentioned, going from the Ryman to Broadway to play shows and why people do that. But when you're on Broadway, people don't always understand that those are like four-hour sets. Yeah. So when you go to the Ryman and they ask you to play another 20 minutes, a lot of people would freak out over that and think to themselves, oh my God, what am I going to play? I only prepared for 20 minutes. I don't have another 20 but you playing on broadway i can only imagine you probably could have gone for about another four hours yeah i could have easily filled time with covers and luckily i'd been i've been writing full time for probably three years i guess at that time and so i had plenty of original material to do so that worked out but you know it had i not yeah i i had had so much experience on broadway i could have gone all night man whatever <laughs> they needed I know you've had experience in traveling and even working outside of Nashville. What sets Nashville apart to you? Um, I, you know, I think it's it's the same thing that um, the sets L.A. and New York and now Atlanta apart is that they they all have you know this this thing and they're all kind of doing that thing. So it's a community. It's it's definitely community. And while the styles of of every genre are cyclical, I think the community remains. And it's um, the history, I think, as well, uh, is, is a big part of Nashville. People have been recording in New York and L.A. for for years now. So that's, you know, it's not like they're, those are the new guys. They've been around a long time, but Nashville just seems to have a much more um, rich history, I guess, than other cities. I feel like Nashville has has always been more community based. Yeah, for sure. It's well, I think it's part of the city. Well, not anymore, but at the time, it's a small city. So, I mean, 
I yeah. think everybody in that city knows everybody. So it's just like having a smaller community and therefore people are there for each other. Like you said, somebody leaving the Ryman to go play on Broadway is not something you'd probably see happening in New York or in LA. Now yeah. I've had the opportunity to work in both New York and LA. I don't think I've ever worked in Atlanta, but I know the communities and the people and things are just different. I mean, not one better than the other, just different. And the, the way yeah. that people approach recording music is different in those cities. I spent the majority of my career in Nashville, but compared to New York, Nashville's just fast, yeah. fast recording in and out. You got unions to deal with, you got cartridge yeah. companies, everything is on a schedule and you know, yeah. the almighty dollar is flying everywhere because you got to pay for cartridge, you got to pay for the musicians, the studio, the assistants, the engineers, the producers, and so on. There's just so many more things involved, so it has to be run more like a business. Where I think New York and L.A., they have some of that pressure, but it's not quite the same, and there's more experimentation and more working with the actual musicians from the band than the actual studio players a lot. L.A. might have a few more studio musicians than New York, but I just yeah. think those are some, some of the slight differences. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, absolutely. I think also, you know, they've always made rock and roll records in L.A. and in New York. They've always made pop records in L.A. and New York. Whereas Nashville is just kind of, if you want to cut a country record, you go to Nashville. If you want to cut a pop record, you can go to L.A. or you can go to New York. Yeah, that's what I loved about it, too. I mean, I recorded rock albums my time up in the Northeast between Boston and New York, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Nashville, I tried to add a little bit of that flavor to the productions that I got to do on my own. Yeah. But when I was working for others like Bob and so forth, then, you know, obviously you just do whatever their needs are, and you, you know, like John Snyder would be, in his case, not necessarily country all the time, but you know, the different records you, you blend to the styles that they're they're trying to put together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So do you have any routines or rituals you do while you're on the road? Before I perform, I, I like to have about five minutes alone before I do my walkout. Uh, if, if I'm playing, a, you know, a venue that that has a green room and it has a downbeat time and all that. If I'm not, you know, playing a bar somewhere, I, I like to have that time alone, just five minutes. I just like to be quiet and, um, and just kind of collect myself. Now, when you say that, are you a hundred percent alone? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want anybody around. Uh, that's that's just my time to uh, to settle into to what's about to happen, and then um, I also like quiet time after uh, after I perform, especially theaters and things like that. Uh, some of the bigger shows, I like a little time just to just unwind. But I don't I don't have the alone requirement, <laughs> you know. I just don't. I, I want to just chill out for a second and really absorb what it is that, that has just happened. Because I think that's so important. We don't get those shows back, you know. And I think that's 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 also part of why I like having the time, you know, prior to playing, um, prior to doing the walk-up, is to prepare myself, 
I want to get in a headspace where I can absorb the experience. Sure. Yeah. yeah, I like to to walk the venue, get a feel for what the audience is going to be seeing and hearing, and yeah. just to get a chance to walk out and get a feel for what the energy's like and just what the room is like, how the room is sounding, because each room acoustically sounds different. And from an engineering point of view, that's something that I have to get used to. Yeah. But like you said, the energy as well. Like every room has a has a different energy. I love playing old theaters, man. I got to do so much of that uh, when I was touring with Don Williams. We got to do so many great old theaters, and every one of those, as you said, they they all sound different. But they also the other thing you said was that the energy yeah. is different in, in every one of them, and it's and they're all special and unique. And do you know who Scotty Simpson is? Yeah, he's on the road with the Oak Ridge Boys, and they were just in town. And uh-huh. my wife and I went up to see him play, and we got a tour of the venue. And it was a old, it's an old opera house. It was very similar to like mm. the setup of the Ryman, and it had been closed for thirty years, and they had just recently reopened it and started bookings again. Wow! And I kid you not, wow. it's like nothing was touched in those thirty years. I mean, the walls, wow, the paint man. chipping from the ceiling, everything was exactly the same. Oh, I love it. And it was it was it, just man. amazing. And the Oak Ridge Boys, I mean, I know this is probably going to be their last tour, but they were, I saw they that. were just yeah. awesome. It was just a good night. I mean, I had a blast. It was just fun seeing them and listening to their music and getting to see Scotty play up there with them. It was just fun. That's man. That's that's really cool, and I'm I'm so glad you got to do that. Yeah, I saw the other day. I guess this is this is going to be their last run. Yeah, I, I saw a post today that they were talking about they might play shows here or there, but they're done touring. I think they always do, man. I mean, you you look at you know everybody else is sort of well, we're we're retiring. We'll we'll you know? play here or there. I mean, we'll play in Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I have a 13-year-old daughter, and get this, dude. She is flying to Vegas on Thursday, her and her friend. They're going to Vegas to see Carrie Underwood perform. Oh, wow, wow. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. That's awesome, man. My wife's like, should we let her go? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's let her go. So (laughs) That's great, man. Call me parent of the Uh, year or what. She's a, I guess, is she getting close to the end of her residency there? You know, I'm not sure. I, I know she's only been playing there for like two weeks at a time or, or something like that. It hasn't been yeah. as often as it has in the past. But yeah. I'm excited for my daughter. I mean, I've met Carrie a couple of times. She's very, very nice. So I, mean, I met her at some of the award shows. I've never actually had a chance to work with her, which is mm-hmm. too bad. But she's um definitely very, very nice. That's awesome, man. I'm I'm excited for her. Yeah, no, I I can't wait. I mean, I really can't wait for her. I mean, she's been listening to the music and trying to, you know, just like she did with the Arctic Monkeys. She just repeatedly listens to it and listens to it. She goes, I I, I need yeah. to know every song, and she's looking up the set lists yeah. and stuff. So she wants she's making playlists <laughs> in the order of the way the the night's gonna go. I'm like, you do know it might change, her, right? Man. She's like, I know, but still. So I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> And I, I told this story a couple weeks ago. I bought her a guitar, uh, a Stratocaster, and she wanted mm. to take lessons. So we went out, we bought her Stratocaster. And I kid you not, the very next weekend, we go out of town and went to a convention, and they had a 
a raffle for a Stratocaster. And I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people and she entered in one. Wow. So now she has two Stratocasters at the house. Man. So she's ready. Yeah, I'm telling you, she can't play a note, but man, she's got two. I'm going <laughs> to, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do for her lessons. They have one of those school of rocks here. We might put her into that and see how it works out. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah, man. My, my partner's daughter is doing that with drums. Yeah. She's, she's only done one lesson. Uh, I think she goes back this week. So this seems like a really cool program though. It's fun. I went there, we went, took a tour of the school and, and it was really cool. And she went in for her complimentary lesson and she loved it. They mm -hmm. taught her an Arctic monkey song. So she came home, you know, playing the intro to Arctic monkeys. I'm like, okay, there you go. Yeah. So she was instantly in yeah. love, man. Yeah. So now I'm, awesome, I'm going to be stuck paying for that for the rest of my life. <laughs> That's all right. All right, sir. Well, we do this thing here we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody who might not typically get some credit. Do you have anybody who works with you or for you that works behind the scenes that might not get any credit you'd like to shine a little light on? Yeah, man. R Russell Jackson is great, and you can you can find him on my Instagram pages. He's you know he's tagged on there, and I've got a, a great PR team. Core PR, they're excellent. My best friend Jason Jones is great entertainer, incredible songwriter. I've been doing a lot of work recently in in Charlotte. I've been going over there for years working. Uh, it's a studio called Gat Three, G A the letters G A T and the number three, a Grammy Award winning studio. I mean, it's, it sits right in the middle of Charlotte, and it's um it's one of the most incredible facilities that I've I've ever seen, and you and I both have been, you know, in the best studios in Nashville, which are world-class studios. And this this place, you know, is as good, if not better, than anything I've been in in Nashville. Very cool. Uh, great people. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's there's a few special folks. Now, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Drew is an incredible talent, and he's just an all-around great guy. So please join me giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzing.com slash episode 32. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528 407-421-5528